This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. The Tories need a leader, Labour want a new leader, UKIP doesn't even know if it's needed or wanted. When Britain backed leave, our political leaders seem to have taken it a little, literally. David Cameron, Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage, most of the shadow cabinet have all headed for the exit door, a door which Jeremy Corbyn is still clinging to by his fingertips. So what does it mean, and who will end up with their hands on the tiller as we navigate what everyone agrees will be the choppy waters of Brexit? Joining me this week is Times columnist Jenny Russell, who warns that the Labour Party might be as broken as the man still trying to lead it. Red Box regular when Professor of Politics Matthew Goodwin asks what is the point of UKIP now. But first, Times columnist Daniel Finkelstein on the small matter of who is going to run the country. The Conservative Party membership is entirely entitled to choose who it wants as leader. But if they select someone with no public profile or ministerial experience running as the candidate of change from the current leadership that won the last general election, then they must call a new general election. An awful lot has happened in the last couple of weeks. We are looking for a Prime Minister. It looks like Theresa May is by far and away the front runner, but Andrea Leadsom seems to be the, the main challenger. And your, your contention is, is without using any names in your uh, opening, is that if it's Andrea Leadsom, we've got to have a general election. Yes, I'll happily use that <laughs> name. Um, so, uh, you know, Andrea Leadsom is someone I've known, known for nearly 20 years and whose political career I've followed with interest. But I still couldn't tell you what sort of Prime Minister she'd be. And that's because she couldn't tell you that either. She has not only held two junior offices for a year on each occasion, she's running as the candidate for change with the support of a lot of people who are outside the current leadership of the government and they are offering therefore a new government. Now of course they've got the mandate for Brexit from the referendum but the referendum was only a mandate for that and the Leave campaign was very clear when it said we are not a future government. We are When we make promises we're not making promises on behalf of a government. If the Conservative Party exercises what is the perfect right of its membership to choose their own leader. It would be the first time that that had happened when they were also choosing a Prime Minister. That's never happened before. And in those circumstances, I think the party would need that leader to run the general election. Andrew Leadsom has said Tony Blair and David Cameron both became Prime Minister without any experience of ministerial office. True, but they were both leaders of the opposition and won general elections. And there was, uh, there was some interesting stat that I saw that I think in 111 years, nobody has become Prime Minister who hadn't previously been Leader of the Opposition, Chancellor, Home Sec or Foreign Secretary. Right. Which, which based on the, the runners and riders this time around, means that 
Theresa May is miles ahead. Yes, it's not just a... Uh, Andrea Leadsom has got momentum behind her. And don't forget, it's not entirely without reason. She did perform very well during you know, one of the most momentous political campaigns of our lifetime and has the support of a lot of people who won that very big political argument. So it's not as though she has no credibility. And conservative democratic procedures have been put in place to allow the party membership to choose its own leader. But I think it's wrong to choose the leadership of the country without asking the country. And if you choose someone from entirely outside the top team, who, and this is a a critical point, has not been chosen by MPs. You could argue, for instance, that John Major represented a change from the leadership of Margaret Thatcher. He did run as a Thatcherite candidate, ironically (laughs) enough, but he was chosen as the non-Thatcherite leader. But the critical point was he was voted by members of parliament. We're looking at a potential situation here. I don't think this is going to happen, but it could, that Andrea Leadsom would come quite a distant second among members of parliament who would have reflected a very large preference for her opponent and yet be elected by members in those circumstances where she didn't have the credibility of the country's support because she really had no profile and she didn't have the credibility of members of parliament's support and therefore can't simply be taking over inside a parliamentary system which you could argue is legitimate and which she set such a big precedent I think it would make the case for a general election overwhelming. Jenny what's your take on the uh, Theresa Andrea race? Well I'm completely with Danny on this one because I think if you'd asked the country two weeks ago you think you're voting for a Brexit vote. By the way, do you wish to replace David Cameron with um, a very right-wing woman, rather humorless, very unknown, untried, untested, who's going to be your Prime Minister in a few weeks' time? I think the answer would probably resoundingly have been no. So I think a system that is allowing somebody who, as Danny says, has got no background, who doesn't bear any resemblance um, to the administration which the country voted for overwhelmingly a year ago and just to allow her to take over the, the leadership of the country without getting any kind of public approval, I think that will only add to the very dangerous disillusionment with politics which is what has fueled so much of this Brexit scenario. Do you think it was a mistake of David Cameron's not to say? Because he kept on saying during the campaign whatever the outcome he would stay on and obviously within hours of us voting out he... Uh, announced he was going. Do you think it was a mistake? I, I do. It's, it's, it's easier to say this in retrospect, but at the time I wondered about whether to write a column saying he's bound to go if, if he loses. And I know that one of the things that stopped people saying that publicly was that they were afraid that an awful lot of Labour voters and people who thought, oh great, you know, maybe we could just get rid of the Tories, would then vote against Cameron just, for, just in order to get him out. But I do think it's a great shame that there's all kinds of private political signalling which goes on from Westminster which is simply not understood by the voters so that David Cameron expected voters to take perfectly seriously all his um, statements about how damaging Brexit would be to the country which were true. He did not really expect them to understand that he would have to go if he lost the referendum and so a great many people, I've heard this anecdotally since, have been absolutely shocked that he's gone and, and when asked why they're shocked they say well he said he wouldn't yeah. So, you know, what is it that they're meant to understand that's true in politicians, <laughs> and what are they meant to understand that's not true? I think it's a it's a very confusing game that's being played from Westminster, and I wish he had said, I will go if I lose. I think it would have concentrated the mind. But the emotional reaction to both the vote to leave the EU, but also him then announce he was standing down, the sort of the response to that, I think, has surprised some people, even their own personal response to seeing David Cameron go, because they're now suddenly realising that 
particularly if you, yes, he knew what he was doing. But also, particularly on the left, centre left, maybe they might they might have liked the idea of get the bloody Tories out. But actually, you know, they could end up with somebody far less in tune with what they wanted. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I know several Labour voters who have said to me that they literally feel a sense of loss and grief about this man was although they disagreed with many of his individual policies, fundamentally a good, decent man trying to do the right thing for the country. And it wasn't about his personal ambition and it wasn't about some mad radical agenda which he'd got carried away by. And they really feel the loss. Matt, what do you make of seeing how the, the Tory leadership race is playing out? Well, I think on the one hand, the broader landscape of British politics has clearly changed slightly. If you take the estimates of the Brexit vote at the local authority level and you bring them up to constituency, it's now estimated that 521 seats in England and Wales voted for Brexit. And in England, we know that the vote for Brexit was a strong one. It won by seven points, nearly seven points, compared to just just four across the UK. So that is the the landscape on which uh, Andrea Leadsom is campaigning. And with the Boris endorsement, she might have momentum. However, two things would would lead me to, to back May. One is a sense within the Conservative Parliamentary Party that the hustings last night didn't go very well and that Andrea Leadsom, I think, has made a few people inside the party question uh, where she is. So this is the first this set, is the of, first set of hustings. MPs, sort of yeah, the hearing, the, hearing the contenders back yeah, to back. And, and Leadsom clearly did not impress to the extent that she was expected uh, to do. And secondly... She was described as an effing disaster, wasn't she, by one of the MPs who came out? Yeah. and Went and, down like a cup of cold sick was, was another, another, was another well, You do have to, do you have to separate that, the fact that, that all that of those some, people are backing somebody well, else. Exactly. And also that, that members of Parliament are the least likely to want somebody who has been a junior minister to suddenly be the leader. Uh, they're the most sceptical of that. Now, there is both good and bad points. On the one hand, then, you know, the reason for that may not be that honourable. In other words, they don't want to see someone from their own generation suddenly leap up. And, and there was a generational problem that David Cameron had with yeah. the people who were, who'd come into Parliament after him and were being leapt over. It also reflects the fact that MPs see people close up. They, they do appreciate that she's got less experience and whatever their appreciation of her talents they may think she isn't ready. I do think as well that the the assumption was very much that because the Conservative membership backed Brexit by probably a ratio of around 62 to 38 that all of those members would naturally back Leadsom. If you just take all of the polling that we've had just over the last four days from YouGov and ICM and Servation, it's very, very devastating actually for uh, uh, Leadsom. Theresa May, across the board in terms of attributes, statesmanship, trust, competence, I mean, is is leagues ahead of, of other and, contenders. And crucially, it has a very high positivity amongst both Remainers well, and Leavers. That's absolutely the critical point because Leavers are basically, Lever Tories are basically split down the middle uh, and Leadsom should be completely dominating that group but she isn't. And Leadsom is only 4% I think of Remain Tory members back Leadsom. And, and her, her positivity ratings are, n- are nowhere near as good as, uh, as Theresa May's. Yeah that's certainly true. Yeah. Matthew why do you think that um, Leavers loyalty to Leave is less strong than their loyalty to what presumably is May's competence and leadership. I would describe this as the sandwich Tory effect. And what I mean by that <laughs> is if you went back to the 2015 general election and the, the, the seat of South Thanet, where I spent a bit of time on the ground looking at that campaign, very Eurosceptic, classic sort of UKIP-style territory, working class, disadvantaged. But the true blue Conservatives in that seat, Sandwich and Broadstairs, 
were ultimately looking for competence. They were worried about their house prices. They were worried about you know, what sort of avert Euroscepticism would do to, to the economy, even though they shared many of those ideas. And so I, think, I, think that's playing, I think that's playing out in this, in this leadership election. <coughs> Conservatives who are instinctively Eurosceptic, but also value competence. The other thing that shouldn't, we shouldn't miss out is uh, Theresa May is a very canny, capable candidate. She has um, positioned herself very well. She's done very well in her job. She's managed to make few enemies. She's quite strategic in her thinking, so therefore she sets a target. And I, I, what really impressed me, of all things, uh, was the move that she made on the surplus in the uh, when she introduced herself to the leadership. I thought that was someone who was who realised that we, who, well, what she did was to announce that she wouldn't reach a budget surplus if uh, in this parliament and she'd abandon the surplus rule if she became leader. This was someone appreciating that now that we've left the EU, that target cannot be met. Uh, it was um, realising that, thinking ahead towards it, realising that the optimal moment to get yourself off the hook of it was right now, that any moment later from that would be more and more and more difficult, and doing it right at the beginning. I thought that was impressively strategic. And another example of this was her dealings over the EU with David Cameron. She um, withheld support from David Cameron to an unbelievable degree while forcing him to negotiate certain details that she wanted on immigration in the in the agreement that he had and only when he achieved those which he felt under immense pressure to achieve because he needed her support so much did she give her support so one of the uh, factors in this election which should not be underestimated is just how impressive that has been now it's not as though she had a big operation in order to become party leader or that this was a part of a very well worked out plan to become party leader but she certainly shows some signs of impressive strategic thinking and that is an element in this one of her enormous plus points quite apart from the fact that dan as danny's saying she's got a record as an extremely astute negotiator is of course i think it'd be a brilliant thing for britain's brexit if we had a remain Prime Minister, because she alone of the top candidates, Gove, Leadsom, can walk into a room with all those very angry, upset, resentful, understandably resentful European leaders and say, my hands are clean. I didn't vote for this. Now I'm a friend of yours. Can we get the best possible deal for Britain out of this? And just on a human level, which is what happens an awful lot in politics, that will also give her an advantage. That coupled with her strategic eye for how to negotiate, I think is an crucial part of the next five years. Just as the counter-argument to Theresa May, how much do you think there is a similarity with Gordon Brown? That Gordon Brown survived for a long time in the Treasury, in part because he disappeared when things went wrong. And actually, she's, for large parts of being in the Home Office, it has been able to disappear. The government's been in crisis. She was never the one who went out to try and tackle it. And as Prime Minister, you can't do that. Well, the critical difference there is that Gordon Brown was part of the top team. He was responsible for the decisions that were taken. He agreed with them. And then when they went wrong, he disappeared. Theresa May was not part of that inner the, core the, that the, made the, decisions. The day-to-day... So, but it's a different thing. If, if, you, if you disappear at points where you may disagree with what Cameron Osborne <laughs> are doing, which I think is probably what she was doing, that's one thing. Brown would disappear when the decisions that he had helped to drive through went wrong. Yeah. And I don't think that her character is one that says, I will not take responsibility. I think yeah. she's somebody who does believe in responsibility. 
And she also makes a great point, and it's true, of saying what she thinks. I mean, when she comes out and says something, she isn't saying something different in private. There's, there's, no, there's no doubt there were questions over. During the referendum campaign, we were debating a very, very big question. And, you know, if one criticises Jeremy Corbyn for not taking a fulsome role, she didn't either, for her own strategic reasons, but she didn't either. You know, you may say it was canny, or you can also be quite unimpressed by it. There's also questions over the extent to which she has a reach across government into economic areas. But I think you can't, what you can't do is compare that with Gordon Brown. She's not as a character, you know, I've worked with her myself. She is actually quite nice to work with, reasonable, and you know you're dealing with a rational person, even though you're also dealing with someone who is opaque and is not, and is not, the, the best way of describing it is she's not transactional. So she'll take a position uh, and do uh, on something and you'll support her, but then she won't come back and support you in return. <laughs> she'll just take the position on the next issue that's the same. And that's given her reputation for being non-collegiate, but it's also uh, a reputation for being tough yeah. um, at what she does and pursuing the things that she pursues. So, um, you know, they're, 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 I think the comparison with Gordon Brown, where there was a huge amount of sort of emotional nonsense going on, that's not the same thing. I heard a brilliant story about uh, two Tory MPs who went to see Theresa May a few days after the referendum result, basically to inquire as to what jobs they might be um, getting uh, if they supported her. And she just said, I don't do deals, you're going to support me because I'm Theresa May. And that's like that, that sort of, well, she absolutely- I don't do deal. And, and Everybody says we don't do deals, right. and then they do it. But she's really not no, doing no, no. deals. I, mean, I can tell you that in advance. She just literally, she wouldn't, she wouldn't. Um, and this is, I think, one of her strengths. She's very strong in that way. She doesn't play her hand before she plays her hand. Yeah. And so anybody who went to see her on that basis, I think, would be somebody who didn't understand her very well. Yeah. There's no way <laughs> in a million years she would do that. And, and if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. It's an acute contrast to the way that Boris operates. Apparently one of the reasons that Michael Gove deserted him was that he discovered that Boris had promised the 100 junior and senior jobs in a new government to 300 people. <laughs> it's, it's quite possible. Listen, um, there was so much to get through. We could do a whole um, podcast on the Tory party. But uh, Jenny, uh, I feel like we also need to talk about the total mess that is the Labour Party. In the video pleading for his leadership that Jeremy Corbyn released this week, we saw someone who was being literally broken by the struggle to stay in power, a haunted, hunted man. But it's neither him or his party that has to break now, because MPs want a party that has a hope of winning a future election. Corbyn and his allies don't appear to care about that. They just think that a mandate from their members overrides every other consideration. They may destroy Labour, and that may be just what the left needs to revive. We're currently in a position where... I think 65 people have resigned from the front bench team of the Labour Party. All of them now calling for Jeremy Corbyn to go. The deputy leader, Tom Watson, has called for him to go. And he's not gone. Do you think he will ever go? Well, I just talked to a very senior Labour person minutes before we came on air. And they said, look, everything depends on whether Tom Watson and the unions manage to get together and make a deal this afternoon. But the problem is that Corbyn and his allies seriously believe that there's no reason for them to go. And everybody thinks that they're going to push this to an electoral contest. And if Corbyn wins that contest, which he may do because the membership of the party doesn't reflect the way that the electorate feel, then, and only then, will the Labour Party members who have lost all faith in him, who, who can see that he's still mouthing the old platitudes from 30 years ago, he doesn't under, seem to have understood any change in the context, then they will feel, OK, we've done everything that we could, now we have to say that we are setting up a new party in opposition to Corbyn and the Brump. Matt, what do you make of this? Did you, how do you see this playing out in the in the Labour Party? Well, I think obviously it's been a long time coming. I don't think it's uh, all to do with Jeremy Corbyn. I think what Labour's going through is the same crisis that's facing social democrat parties across Europe, which is a which essentially comes down to a coalition that is not viable over the longer term. And there is a clear and present tension in the electorates of centre-left parties between professional middle-class, university-educated voters who are at ease with migration and uh, EU membership, and blue-collar workers who hold a very different set of values. Now, Corbyn is, if you like, a surface problem for the Labour Party. (laughs) The deeper challenge facing the Labour Party is far more profound, and I am not at all confident uh, in the Labour Party's ability to resolve that. I 100% agree with with what Matthew just said. Um, And um, I I also agree with everything that Jenny said until uh, that may just be what the left needs to revive it. In other words, to suggest that the split would would assist the revival of the left. In a two-party political system, there is no alternative but to having adept political leadership that manages the tension between the educated and non-educated people, unless politics is going to split the other way in the sort of remain versus leave. But the problem with splitting the other way is that unites kind of uh, Michael Gove with the voters of Sunderland uh, and Daniel Hannan with the voters of Sunderland and the other way it unites the head of Goldman Sachs with Owen Jones uh, so it doesn't it, 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 uh, those coalitions also have huge tensions yeah. so my view is in a two-party political system you know you have to manage those tensions somehow they're very hard to manage you need skilled political leadership which Jeremy Corbyn doesn't have so that coalition is even more under pressure than it would normally be but of all the moves, if I had to choose my moves, I would choose 
to manage the tension rather than split the party. If you split the party, you can only do it if you think you can assemble a new alternative large coalition. Because you know, you're talking to someone who was once on the national executive. I was going to say the that you, you've been um, you've been there. You know what happens exactly. And if you and if you uh, somebody that I know who later became a Tory minister, he came home to his wife and he said, you know, I'm thinking of joining the STP because everyone in the party they're just like they're just like me. And she said to him, and that's the problem. Right, uh, and and that because they were all just like him, right? In other words, uh, earnest, reasonable, middle class people, and that is not enough in order to get elected. So you have to have a diverse coalition and be a bit of a magician to manage it. Tony Blair was, you know, a magician until somebody spotted what the trick was, you know, and the whole thing's now collapsed. But you have to be. These are very, very difficult things to pull off. David Cameron, you know, you get it pulled off for a very long time, and then he's now crashed. You know, uh, these are these are very hard to do. Jenny, how much of it do you think it comes down to the fact that the Labour Party hasn't really had anybody good since Tony Blair? And part of the reason why Jeremy Corbyn won last year was because the party couldn't muster anyone decent to run against him. And part of the reason they still can't get rid of him now is because they can't find anyone decent to stand in a proper contest that they're confident they could win. Well, yes, and here we return to the essential problem which Matthew is quite right to identify, which is that nobody knows what the function of a social democratic party is at a time when there isn't lots of money to spend. I mean, we talk about Blair being so clever at bridging the gulf, but Blair was himself a confidence trick. I mean, Blair took power just as the economy was booming. China was meaning that um, inflation in the Western world was kept incredibly low as loads of goods that we couldn't have made ourselves at very cheap prices flooded into the place. Therefore, what Blair could say to people was, I believe in redistribution. Everybody was getting richer, so the rich just got richer a little more slowly than the poor got richer. Now we're in a completely different position where actually there are real losers from globalisation and from capitalism. And in order to restore the fortunes of the people at the bottom who are now so angry, you would have to say to everyone who earns um, above sort of the 30th percentile, you're going to have to give up a lot of what you have now in order to make life fair for, for those at the bottom. Now that's an incredibly unattractive proposition. And that is why Labour hasn't got anybody coming forward because nobody within this party, as they haven't in Europe, has come up with a very good scheme or strategy or programme by by which you bind together those people and you say to the people who have more, you have to give away something to those who have less. I think Labour's going to completely have to think outside of the box now going forward. I mean, if you look at the referendum results, 60% of Labour seats uh, delivered a majority uh, Brexit vote. And to those Labour MPs who are thinking about splitting, Danny mentioned the um, SDP, they should all go and read Ivor Crewe and Anthony King's book on the SDP and just realise how difficult that is going to be as an exercise. You know, they they said in that book, new parties often go up like a rocket but fall down like a stick. And that's the real challenge, I think, for these MPs, is how do you turn that into a viable organisation? The, the other problem is is also that it will be done at the, the background of Brexit. There was in the Tory leadership, and there is in the conversation about Labour, quite a lot of discussion about you know how we appeal to the Brexit constituency that has voted you know angry against globalisation, and we've got to do something about big corporate salaries and corporate involvement. At the same time, if we do not attract big corporations to stay in this country somehow, the whole economy is going to collapse. The Brexit, what Brexit meant economically, was more tolerance of uh, 
the interests of corporates, more freedom and lower taxes for those bodies in order to attract them to this country. What it means politically is less tolerance. There is an impossible tension there, not just in the coalition. And it's one of, one of the main arguments I tried to use against leaving the European Union. And now in the Tory leadership race, you could see all the candidates, uh, with lesser, lesser or lesser extent Theresa May, but actually all three of them, uh, appealing to, um, you know, let's uh, include more people in the fruits of globalisation. What fruits? <laughs> the, the huge problem that Labour Party faces now is when, when I said this break may be what the left needs to survive, needs to revive. It's not that I think there's some you know golden opportunity or obvious answer. The point is that Corbyn and Corbynism is a disaster. It it's only, only ever going the, to appeal to a tiny left. minority. Exactly. So trying something new is the only option. But no one has come forward who can resolve all these contradictions or who understands what it is they would be putting forward. So the Tory party are in a mess, the Labour party is in a mess. Can UKIP make the most of it now it's lost? The one-man band has packed up and gone home. Well, can UKIP survive without Nigel Farage? There are good reasons to be sceptical. The openly Eurosceptic turn in British politics and likely controls on immigration could remove UKIP's USP, while internal problems within the party clearly persist. Several possible contenders are already jockeying for position, but do any of them have the equivalent of the Farage factor? And what will their arrival mean for British politics more generally? So, it, it sort of, no day is complete now without somebody quitting. Nigel Farage is the most uh, recent one as we record this. Were you surprised? No, I wasn't surprised. What I was surprised about, sort of sitting and listening to uh, the speech, was just how few of the senior officials within the party knew what was about to happen. This was a very, this was this was kept very close to to Farage. But I am very sceptical of UKIP's uh, prospects going forward, uh, not for the obvious reasons that we're now in post-Brexit Britain and there are likely to be reforms to free movement. I think there are actually some, some more fundamental and more immediate obstacles uh, within that party that will be very difficult for Farage's successor. I think what's missing in a lot of the media coverage uh, of Farage's resignation is an acknowledgement that it isn't only Farage leaving, it's also pretty much uh, everybody who is anybody around uh, Nigel Farage. And those activists are the only ones who actually have experience of running and winning the few by-elections and contests that UKIP did win. So that's going to impose an immediate problem on the party. And I think secondly as well, quickly, donors. Farage was very good at cultivating wealthy donors. I don't see many people in the top tier of UKIP who might be able to emulate that. So I'm far more gloomy, I think, about UKIP's prospects. I know nothing about the personalities, but one thing I can predict in the narrative of the next few years is that an awful lot of people who voted for Brexit are going to be so angry and disappointed by the fact that their lives are not going to be radically changed or improved by Brexit. There will have to be some kind of fudge on access to the single market and therefore immigration, and it will make a lot of people who thought that they were voting for an end to immigration Furious. Therefore, there will be a role for a small, we were betrayed, we still have something pure to fight for party in British politics, and I think UKIP, whoever leads it, will be that. It's interesting, actually, looking at the people who are lining up to replace Farage. There are essentially three individuals within the party. Uh, Paul Nussel, Farage's long-time deputy, Stephen Wolfe, the migration spokesperson, and Diane James, the MEP, who we probably remember most from the Eastleigh by-election. All three of those, interestingly, yesterday were talking almost exclusively about Labour territory, not Conservative territory. And so the Labour Party may well find itself squeezed 
um, at least in the short term, if not necessarily the longer term, by this sort of lingering UKIP problem in the heartlands? It cannot work and it cannot fail. The bit that means it can't <laughs> fail um, is that it, it can't fail because it's got uh, a demographic that supports it. If you look, if you take the thesis, you know, Matthew being a distinguished political scientist, the, the thesis on uh, people's self-interest that is being argued about a lot of political scientists, you know, there is a group of people for whom opposing political correctness uh, is strongly in their self-interest. That is, people with um, low educational skills who, who belong to dominant social groups, old white males in crumbling seaside constituencies. That is a a, uh, a strong base, demographic base for UKIP, um, and uh, it also we talked earlier about the tensions in political parties and, te- and coalitions, and those people are the people it's very hard to reach while you're still appealing to the centre. So that's the uh, reason why it can succeed, but it also is limited by that. If you appeal to those people, it's very difficult to build a broader coalition. And in a two-party political system, how do you win any seats if you do that? Um, So I think that UKIP will not go away. But, you know, even obviously, even if it did succeed in winning loads of seats, it couldn't win any share in government without cooperating with someone else. So it's very difficult for that to succeed uh, as a political party, but also very difficult for it to go away. How potent it is now just depends on the ability of any new leader to impose their personality and it's just difficult to know. For, to my mind, I think it looks to me like Paul Nuttall might be the most powerful of the leaders they've got, but he doesn't have Farage's personality, does he? I think if UKIP were to be handed over essentially to Paul Nuttall, we would see a more strident anti-immigration message. Nuttall is somebody who's very preoccupied with the issue of Islam, is somebody who's looked more to Gert Wilders than to um, Margaret Thatcher. Um, On the other hand, if we end up in a sort of Stephen Wolfe, Diane James joint ticket, which some people are talking about, you perhaps have a more moderate, uh, you know, within the spectrum of UKIP, a more moderate uh, appeal perhaps to to, to conservatives and Labour voters. One of the awkward tensions which which a UKIP insider said to me yesterday, which, which is an important one within the party, is that 50% of their members are below the M4 in southern England, but most of their electoral potential is arguably in the north. And that is the tension that underpins this debate. And that that sort of sums up this idea that up until now, the UK posed a threat to the Tory shires, and that was why we had the promise of the referendum in the first place. And yet... Almost without them noticing or trying, actually it's turned out that where they could make the biggest inroads is in the north. Yeah, well, although everyone talks about UKIP uh, being um, the reason why the referendum pledge was made, uh, a very, very important factor is missed out of that, which is the Lisbon Treaty. The Labour Party's promise yeah. in 2005 to deliver the referendum on uh, a constitution, which they then didn't do, produced promises by Tory MPs. So if it had merely been UKIP, I think it would have been a resistible demand, actually. You would have looked at the external risk of a UKIP, of UKIP winning seats not that great, versus the uh, problem of having a referendum in the end and losing it. Uh, the problem was it was much broader in the right. So although that is, I know, the common thing, you know, Farage won the referendum, he did definitely play a role. The existence of UKIP was definitely played a role, but I think that um, a big role. Uh, but I think that the uh, Lisbon Treaty is often ignored. As and because a, David Cameron made the cast iron pledge that we would have a referendum, and then he became prime minister, we didn't have one. Correct. And if you look at the, and I believe this to be right, and there'll be people listening who can get graphs in front of them and look at this. If you look at the, the what happened to David Cameron's leadership. What happened over the Lisbon uh, Treaty when he decided that he couldn't offer it because it had been already ratified did actually produce a dip before the 2010 general election 
from very very high margins of victory to the margin of victory ultimately won it played a bit a role well these are uh, extraordinary times which we will continue to follow uh, closely if you want to wake up every morning to a guide uh, to what is happening in british politics you can sign up to my free uh, red box political briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box you can email your thoughts to redbox at thetimes.co.uk tweet at times red box or find us on facebook and uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast via itunes or on your android device but for now from jenny danny matthew and me it's goodbye thank you for downloading to discover more head to thetimes.co.uk this episode of politics without the boring bits is brought to you by luton rising owners of london luton airport the uk's most socially impactful airport find out more at lutonrising.org.uk when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.